Welcome to WPKN's Resistance Roundtable, coming to you the second Saturday of each month from 10 to 11 a.m. In this hour, we'll talk about the latest violations of the restraining order against the serial abuser Donald Trump with our regular panel, Ruth Ann Baumgartner, Scott Harris, and myself, Richard Hill. Ruth Ann teaches English at Central Connecticut State University and is active in the American Association of University Professors. She also directs plays for the Westport Community Theater, now in hiatus, but hopefully soon to return. Scott Harris is the host of Counterpoint, a public affairs show that airs every Monday at 8 p.m. here on WPKN. He's also the executive producer of Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, which is a nationally syndicated show that also airs on WPKN. And I host First Tuesday Rainy Day Radio, the Organic Farm Stand, and I'm on the roster of hosts for the public issue show Mike Check, which airs every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. on WPKN. And this week we'll be joined by two guests. First, David Lindorf, an investigative journalist, author, and founder of the This Can't Be Happening blog site. He'll focus on the dangerous fascistic flailings of Trump and his orc army as Inauguration Day approaches. And a little later, we'll talk with David Dian the executive editor of the American Prospect magazine, who will share his thoughts on the prospects for systemic change with the Biden-Harris administration and on what Biden has already signaled so far with his cabinet picks. So we have a lot on our plate today, but we do have a few minutes to check in for brief comments with our panel. So Ruth Ann, I'm checking you once, I'm checking you twice. What say you? Why, thank you, Richard. What I say, I'm going to say as fast as I can because I always have more to say than I have time for. So here goes. <laughs> the news last night that the Supreme Court had, contrary to the expectations of the guy who chose a third of them, held the line on basic constitutional principles, is producing sighs of relief. But the latest round of failed lawsuits shouldn't tempt us to expect the inauguration to be greeted by a national singing of Kumbaya. The thought that this last lawsuit was endorsed by eventually a sizable number of Republicans in the House of Representatives is a warning that President Biden should expect as much resistance there as he's sure to get in the Senate. In other words, after Trump does come the deluge in the form of a mm. Congress that refuses to get things done, as well as economic, societal, international, and planetary chaos. Sometimes at CCSU, though, I'm lucky enough to get to teach early American literature including the documents that reflect our ongoing debate about a government and a nation, from Puritan compacts to the U.S. Constitution. One realization that emerges is that a fundamental uniqueness of the United States is that it isn't merely a place. It's a shared idea. Birthplace is only one dimension of citizenship. Immigrants to this nation swear an oath to uphold the Constitution, as do members of Congress and the President. Actually, we all take this oath implicitly when we participate in the processes that choose local and national leaders, enlist in military or other U.S. service corps, register to vote, and pay taxes, those who do. My students are genuinely stunned when they realize how much of who we are as a nation and as individual citizens depends on conscious acceptance of a set of shared principles expressed in words and enforced by laws. 
when we start to articulate what the words and documents agreed upon by the nation's founders actually mean, there's a kind of joy palpable in the classroom. Maybe we've become so fragmented as a society because a lot of us seem to think the flag we pledge allegiance to and the republic for which it stands equate freedom with doing whatever you want in a land where rule of law is defined by police, equality is somehow trumped by the social Darwinian, Darwinian survival of the fittest, free speech means shutting up or shouting, and defense means guns. If we promise things on our honor, maybe we should give some thought to what honor actually is. If our nation is to come back from the madness that has been spreading in the 21st century, we have to spend more time with the ideas that are our heritage. As my students discover with joy, we are a nation by choice and active consent, the result of an ongoing debate among people who aspire to individual and collective greatness. And as a last note, I'd like to mark the passing of my friend Sergio Germanario, a friend since high school, with whom I have been fighting over politics since high school and continued to love very much until his death. Thank you for that time. Thank you, Ruth. We talk about the whole issue of moving toward the inauguration on January 20th being resolved by the Supreme Court decision. But I don't know, I caught Jamie Raskin, I think it is, a senator from... uh, going to say Maryland, who was on the Rachel Maddow show the other night. And he talked about all this other stuff that could happen when they actually uh, certify or count the, the electoral votes, present them in Congress, and that there could be a last-ditch flurry of, of activity there to block and, and delay. It ain't over till it's over. Unfortunately. Yeah. Scott, uh, what, what have you been thinking about? Well, first, sorry to hear about your friend's passing. Thanks, Scott. You know, just just quickly, you know, we've we've survived a coup attempt, certainly. And in supporting the Texas lawsuit to overturn the 2020 election, unanimously rejected by the U.S. Supreme Court last night, we had 126 Republican Party members of the House of Representatives, 18 attorneys general, and uh, Georgia Senators David Perdue, Kelly Loeffler, and certainly Texas Senator Ted Cruz, They've very clearly violated their oath of office to uphold the Constitution and democracy. They've revealed themselves to be fascists, neo-Confederates, and authoritarians, implacable enemies of the U.S. Constitution and democracy. In uh, short, the mask has been torn off the Republican Party. And there are folks out there, and I'm one of them, who would like to see those 18 state attorney generals prosecuted for sedition and certainly at least to be disbarred. Democratic representative of New Jersey, Bill Pascrell, has called for the exclusion of those 126 Republican House members from being seated in the next Congress. He cited the text of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which disqualifies from service any individuals who seek to attack American democracy, as well as Congress's power to exclude members by majority vote as acknowledged by the U.S. Supreme Court in the case Powell versus McCormick. I think what I'm concerned about right now, and many people are, is that there, as Richard put it earlier, there's an army of orcs out there who believe that uh, Donald Trump is their dear leader. And some of them uh, expressed that they would uh, lay down their lives for him. I think we all have to be concerned about the prospect of violence over these next 90 days for certain and uh, praying and hoping 
that people calm down and and uh, all those folks with the guns, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the militia groups get a dose of reality now. But I'm not counting on it. Wow. Thanks, Scott. That uh, blows our ears back a bit. In the minutes I have, I uh, just wanted to mention that I've been noting that uh, liberals and progressives have been pretty much freaking out about the fact that Donald Trump garnered 74 million votes, maybe a few more, and have been to some degree overlooking the fact that Biden's vote total is now more than 81 million votes, the most of any presidential candidate in history. Republicans are convinced that Trump is the most popular president in at least a generation. But what do these vote totals really mean in the broad sweep of U.S. elections? Matt Bai, a Washington Post opinion writer and reporter, suggests it's too soon to know and that it's more likely that Trump's performance was, in fact, underwhelming, given the massive increase in voter turnout, which resulted from the multiple ways of casting ballots in almost every state. In fact, turnout was around 66 percent, which is the highest in more than a century. We should note that the mail-in and absentee ballot upsurge mostly benefited Biden, but it also contributed to Trump's total. According to the University of Florida's Elections Project, about 20 states reported the number of mail-in ballots by party registration, and in those states, about 10 million Republicans sent back completed ballots, as did about 9 million unaffiliated voters. The probability is that this accounts for millions of votes that Trump wouldn't have gotten in a traditional election. And that study doesn't include the data from giant states, which were not, for some reason not included in the study, such as Texas, Ohio, and New York. Without the alternative voting method, it's reasonable to think that Trump's vote total would have been much closer to his 2016 total, which for an incumbent president is not all that impressive. And in terms of the share of vote total, Trump did about the same as he did in 2016, that is to say the percentage of the total vote, and the same as Mitt Romney in 2012. Well, the last president to lose an election in a two-way race, Gerald Ford, claimed 48% of the vote in, 17, uh, in 1976. It does seem like a few centuries ago. Compared with Trump's 47% in this election. So nobody remembers Ford as being the powerhouse that would dominate the Republican Party for the years to come after his defeat. As Matt By states, it's likely that we'll look back in 20 years and say that Trump's 74 million was actually quite low for an incumbent president in the era of the expanded vote. And it's entirely possible that we won't see an incumbent president garner fewer than 70 million votes for the next several decades. By concludes that Trump's 74 million falls into the new normal for U.S. elections, and as opposed to making him some kind of unstoppable phenomenon to be feared by the Dems and slavishly followed by the Republicans, we should regard this as, as I said earlier, underwhelming and try to put it in the perspective of the history of voting turnout in the past 50 years, let's say. Here we have it. Thank you, Richard. Well, right now, I'm very happy to welcome to Resistance Roundtable journalist and author Dave Lindorf. Dave is founder and editor of the news blog site, thiscan'tbehappening.net. 
He's the author of This Can't Be Happening, Resisting the Disintegration of American Democracy. In an earlier book, The Case for Impeachment, The Legal Argument for Removing President George W. Bush from Office, written with Barbara Olshansky. Dave's recent article on the 2020 election published at the Counterpunch News site is titled Trump and Giuliani Go Full IS in Attack on Biden and the Democrats. Dave, thanks so much for making time to come on our program this this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. Maybe I'll just kick things off here. By the way, we're joined by co-hosts uh, Richard Hill and Ruth Ann Baumgartner. But um, I, I first of all wanted to uh, get your response to the sentiments after the unanimous rejection by the Supreme Court last night of that Texas lawsuit that our institutions, our democratic institutions, have held. The system works. It's not broken. We you know, deflected a coup attempt here. What's your response to that kind of self-satisfied uh, sentiment that uh, we're, we're okay now, we're in the clear, Trump is in the rearview mirror? Yeah, well, on the surface, it looks that way. But the idea that, uh, that all these lawsuits were even given serious consideration, and this one, you know, three of the judges that I guess they were, they were all the ones Trump appointed wanted to have a like a full hearing. But then, you know, after they when it was clear that they weren't going to get that, they all voted not to uh, apparently voted not to sign any merit to this lawsuit. But the idea that uh, in court after court, the uh, there were there were cases, there were hearings. You know, these were ludicrous lawsuits. So every single one of them didn't have. Uh, the, the slightest basis in evidence for for uh, consideration. I mean, if you look at it that way, I mean, the idea that we would ha- not know who's the president and that you know the media says the, that Biden is likely to be the winner for all these weeks is insane. He won by seven million plus votes, and he won by four over four percent of the vote, and he had a solid 306 delegates. And and also, you know, if they questioned some of those cases, he still won. They still had the 270. So there just wasn't really a case. So that's not real, real, you know, the institutions working. But we also, you know, the other thing you've got to say is that the, uh, the, relic of the slave era uh, electoral college is, is an abomination against any kind of concept of democratic democratic governance. Well, I have one more question before we move to our other panelists. In seven of the last eight presidential elections, the Democrats have won the popular vote. It's very clear that the Republicans are a minority party, and they have done everything in their power to undermine democracy. Not just Trump. We're talking going back many years with voter suppression tactics. Yeah, mass- it goes back to Vigory and to uh, really Nixon. Right. So, so my question is really: we we have a a political party that is clearly on the on the side of authoritarianism right now. They back Trump. The party members, the legislators, majority of them back Trump and what he was trying to do to overturn a democratic election. What does that say to the future of this country, where the one of the two main parties is trying to overthrow our constitution and democracy? It's very clear. I, there's no argument you could make to me that that's not their agenda. 
Yeah, well, I, you know, I would agree with that, but I don't think that the problem is the party. I don't think it's the Republican Party that's the problem. It's the, uh, the ruling elites have created this mess by dumbing down the American public through uh, through weakening our our media, um, our mass media, and through um, basically destroying decent education for most people um, through the system we consider public education. People are not uh, taught; they're not raised to understand their own history to understand uh, civic role uh, and how government works. The average American doesn't know what the Constitution is, doesn't know what the Bill of Rights is, doesn't know how the government works, uh, doesn't know what elections are. Uh, they just don't understand any of it. And it's because the, we've created this deliberately. You know, the, there's been an intentional dumbing down of the population uh, through underfunding of education, through uh, rules on, you know, what, <laughs> what books get uh, published. Most of them have to pass through the uh, Texas State Board of Education's approval in order to be published. Uh, and um, so, you know, we have a, a situation where citizens will buy the dumbest crap put out by the Republicans like and, and Trump and think that it's, uh, that it's the truth because they don't know. David, this is Richard. I wanted to bring it back to the immediate crisis that we're in right now. And just uh, maybe could you give us the parameters of that crisis? I mean, how bad is this situation with Trump roaming loose with guns at the ready, so to speak, rhetorical guns at the ready, with 207, I think now, million dollars ready to spend on God knows what? And... (laughs) rabble-rousing. He tweeted today that the Supreme Court decision was a disgrace. But leading up to the inauguration, what kind of mischief and real danger does he pose to that date? And then beyond that, if he uh, puts up this mock candidacy for 2024 with his uh, war chest, in your worst nightmares, what are we looking at? Well, it's not actually my worst nightmare. I, I, my worst nightmare is that Trump would launch a war before, uh, before the inauguration while he's still president and commander-in-chief, uh, or try to. You know, he did try to do that, uh, attacking uh, Iran's nuclear sites. Uh, and I'm sure it wouldn't have been stopped there. It would have been command and control and all the things that the military usually tries to do in a major uh, major war, so that that is my nightmare. But I don't think it'll happen. Uh, as far as your uh, hypothesis, I I actually don't. I'm I'm a contrarian on that. I don't see Trump himself as a threat. I don't see him as uh, expending his two hundred million dollars in uh, in money uh, raised as a threat of a. 2024 2024 candidacy. I see Trump is such a grifter and such a money hog that, uh, you know, between the debts that he's going to have and the court cases he's going to have in New York uh, at a minimum, and maybe federal ones too, if he can't pardon himself, he's going to be busy spending his money (laughs) and saving his 
his financial empire such as it is, uh, and we'll find out what it is soon. So I, I think he's a has-been. He's a loser. You know, people who lose in the United States are not heroes. So uh, I think he's going to fade into the uh, into the background as a loser, and that's not the problem. But the problem is still that uh, he did get those 70 million votes, or 70, what was it, 73 million votes, and um, and the, a lot of those are uh, are a cult that whether they stay with Trump, they believe in all these QAnon fantasies about, you know, secret government, deep state, and that is a danger. And those those people do have guns. I, I still tend, though, because I know a lot of those people who have those guns, since I have a summer place up in the Catskills in all Republican country, and uh, you know, most of them are not the types of people that are going to go out on the streets and shoot up people and you know organize into uh, into militias that will confront police or the military or or you know lefties. Uh, they're people who spend a lot of time on video games and who are struggling to survive financially. And, you know, they might spend a lot of their free, available cash on guns, but, you know, they really, if, if the ACA is overruled, for example, by this, this Supreme Court, there's going to be a lot of really, really pissed off people at Republicans. So I, I just don't, I see this falling apart as Trump falls apart. Uh, that's an interesting perspective. I'm just concerned that Trump is so addicted to the mass rally and to the adulation that he gets uh, from that, that I, I just suspect he's going to continue with that, you know, perhaps under the, the ruse that he's actually running for president again. And that those Bund rallies, which keep the energy at a fever pitch and would seem to satisfy their need for participation in these kind of bizarre rituals, which which I would uh, call those rallies, that he's just not going to be able to stop doing that. And I wonder what the effect of that will be as he continues to spew lies and accusations about Biden and Harris and all the uh, other things that Biden and Harris might try to do. And we're going to be speaking with David Day in a little later about, you know, what Biden could do and how he might be constrained by that kind of activism on the part of Trump. Ruth Ann, do you have a comment, question yeah, for I've, Dave? Yeah, I've been thinking um, the, the numbers you pointed out, um, Dave, also uh, resonated with a concern that, that uh, I've been worried about, and that is how comfortable we've permitted ourselves to become with the concept of minority rule, because obviously we have that. I've been referring to President McConnell, because he seems to be the one who who makes everything happen or stops things from happening. Um, I, I wish somebody had done that to the face of Trump, because Trump might have severed their relationship then. But, but do you think that the country is actually becoming comfortable with the idea of minority rule and the accompanying, accompanying militias that every other country that experimented with minority rule have, have had to turn to? Well, we've had minority rule for some time now. So, yeah, I think people have sort of accepted it as, well, we didn't fall apart, you know, so and it's yeah. not the worst thing in the world. It is the worst thing in the world. But 
you know, I I do have an idea. I have an op-ed piece that's kind of humorous that I'm going to start peddling on Monday. But uh, if I don't, I'll I'll publish it. And, you know, in my own site and get it spread around. But then it would be on the left. I'd like it in the mainstream. I think we need to turn the the word Trump into a pejorative and perhaps even a word that has to be with uh, asterisks after the T uh, as an obscene word. And the, the the basis for that is, you know, in old English, Trump, Trumper, a uh, Trump, uh, is an old English Scottish word that means uh, basically bullshit, and uh, that uh, trumpery is uh, an old English term for uh, for nonsense and and uh, garbage. And Shakespeare used it in The Tempest uh, that way. Uh, that was standard usage at the time, and I think we need to bring it back. And uh, you know, I think Fred Fred Trump didn't realize when he picked Trump as the family name when they immigrated uh, and gave that to a, a immigration official that it had that connotation. But it does, and and we should start using it. We should refer to Trump's uh, nonsense as Trumpery, and we should, uh, you know, if somebody says some kind of BS to you, say, cut the Trump <laughs> and uh, start using it in the vernacular. We have to bring it back to the vernacular. And at that point, he'll be such a ludicrous figure if we start uh, using the term that way for everything um, that he'll, he'll become a laughingstock. I think that's terrific. We 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 still have the expression "trumped up," which always means yeah. fake or cheap. So right. exactly right, yeah. and that comes from trumpery. Right. So uh, you know we need to get the trumpery out of the White House. We need to uh, stop the trumping. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just, just start using it, and Excellent. and uh, and eventually it'll be T. Asterisk, 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 asterisk in the media. Hmm. Yeah, Chris Cuomo is already referring to the Republicans as the re Trump, I can't even pronounce it, but re Trumplicans, I think is the way. <laughs> Trumplicans. Yeah. Maybe but, trumpet players will start referring to themselves as cornetists again. Yeah, really. <laughs> well, sign us up, Dave, for the new usage of uh, that name, Absolutely. which we can't right, say. We'll just- we can't say it on the air, though, so we, we can't say that. They're the FCC has well, banned it. What we to do is start pointing out, I'm not sure we should say this on the, on the air, but, you know, we've had enough Trump from, from Trump. Well, Dave, thank you so much for uh, spending time with us this morning. Okay, well, yeah. thanks for having me. We'll, we'll stay in touch. We'll look for your, uh, your editorial on the word. Okay, I'm hoping the, the word. Do it. Okay. You take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's... Uh, Dave Lindorf. He is uh, author as well as an investigative journalist and editor of the news blog, thiscan'tbehappening.net. Now we are happily joined by our next guest, David Dayan, who is the executive editor of the American Prospect magazine. David, thank you so much for making time for us today. This is, this is really great that you could be here because we've been following some of your commentary, uh, both in interviews and in print about prospects for the Biden-Harris administration. Uh, The long list, actually, that you articulated recently with, uh, I think, Ryan Grimm on Deconstructed Podcast, of of the things that Biden could do if he had the courage and the fortitude uh, with executive orders and also implementing laws that are actually on the books that nobody seems to realize anymore. 
but also more recently you you've begun to express alarm at some of uh, the things that we're finding out about the Biden cabinet and concerns about the fact that Biden may in fact capitulate to extremely to the right and to Republicans in, in the way he governs. So why don't you give us um, your sense of, I guess, both things, the, the, the things that he could do and what you fear he may not do as, uh, as the new administration comes into power. Well, thanks for having me on. So last September, actually, we put together a series uh, that we call it the Day One Agenda. And it looked at all of the things that a Democratic president could do without needing new legislation. Uh, even at that time, there was some sort of despair in progressive circles that even if you win the presidency, uh, you still have to contend with the filibuster and you still have to contend with Mitch McConnell. Uh, that obviously came to pass when uh, the election results came out and uh, we saw a Biden victory, but a Senate that at best would be a 50-50 proposition uh, and at worst would be still in control uh, of Mitch McConnell, uh, thirty thwarting any hopes for at least ambitious uh, legislative action. So we set to work looking uh, at the laws on the books because uh, the, the entire function of a president, if you look at the Constitution, is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. That is the job description. And, you know, we've had 116 Congresses and a whole lot of laws that have been passed. And uh, there are really strong uh, authorities within those laws that have been given to the executive branch to implement and uh, if you add them all up, if you look at them all, it comes out to a pretty big agenda. And, and this is across a host of, of different uh, issue areas from healthcare to education to uh, immigration and trade, foreign policy, obviously. You know, it's both a combination of areas where the Constitution gives the executive already authority and ones where Congress has, has kicked that upstairs to the executive branch. So, you know, I mean, uh, since the election, we've, we've published probably another set of these ideas for uh, what the next president can do. Uh, so we have something like 30 articles or so. Uh, and if you go to dayoneagenda.org, you can, you can read all of them, and I, you can go into much, much greater detail. Uh, but I'm happy to, to sort of summarize a couple of them here. As for... You know, whether this will be done, I mean, we, we kind of designed it as a blueprint that both would guide, you know, the potential of a Democratic administration, now what we know to be the Biden administration, uh, and also just sort of knowledge that progressives can have to not be swayed by this idea that uh, everything is hopeless and Mitch McConnell can block everything and, and there's no possibility for progress. Uh, that's just not true. In, in some sense, this is sort of an arsenal to show, uh, you know, we know President-elect Biden, Vice President-elect Harris, we know that you have the ability to uh, get some things done, and we're going to be watching you to see if you live up to that. And 
that starts with personnel. So, you know, there, there's the adage that personnel is policy. And uh, the only way that these day one agenda items are going to be implemented is if you have people at the cabinet agencies, uh, in, in the upper echelons of the economic team, in the White House, who are willing to carry them out. And so we've been following that very closely. And we have another section of the website called Cabinet Watch, uh, where we've been looking at the ups and downs of, of who's going to be in, who's going to be out. Uh, we've been able to, you know, through our, our sources and our, our contacts, uh, been able to be pretty, pretty knowledgeable about that. And I think Joe Biden prefers people that he's comfortable with, people that he's known for a long time. Uh, that's certainly reflected in a lot of these picks. But also he's being constrained by this desire to have a cabinet that looks like America, which is something that, that all presidents say, by the way. You, you, uh, in 1992, Bill Clinton said the exact same thing, that I'll have a cabinet that looks like America. But that combination and also the sort of reluctance to use certainly the Senate and to a lesser extent the House as a talent pool because of the closeness of uh, the margins uh, in Congress has led to, you know, a lot of retreads from the Obama administration. It's led to a real balancing act where, where diversity takes precedence over policy and, and experience uh, within the given job. I mean, uh, there are a couple instances this in the last week or so, one with a congresswoman named Marsha Fudge, who, a uh, longtime member of the House Agriculture Committee, really wanted to be agriculture secretary, uh, wanted to sort of take that position in a new direction. What the Agriculture Department does mainly is distribute food through nutrition assistance and, uh, you know, the food stamp program or SNAP. And, uh, you know, she has been a leader on that for a long time in Congress and wanted to really sort of re-envision who the Agriculture Department works for. But Biden has known Tom Vilsack, who was Ag Secretary in Barack Obama's cabinet, uh, since 1988, when he ran for president the first time, and Vilsack was the mayor of Mount Pleasant, Iowa, and he endorsed him. And so he went with who he knew, and Vilsack is sort of an avatar of corporate agriculture, uh, the, the normal vision of the ag department as propping up agribusiness. You know, he comes out of being an agriculture, dairy industry lobbyist, making a million dollars a year, promoting dairy exports, uh, that will be, you know, more of the same. Uh, and then because he, you know, had this promise to Jim Clyburn and the Congressional Black Caucus, he goes ahead and puts Marsha Fudge at the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And there's a, this amazing quote where, where Marsha Fudge says, you know, I want to rethink, you know, where black voices can be useful in a, in a cabinet. I don't want this to be the normal thing where you just stick a black person at HUD. And then that's exactly what what Joe Biden does. Uh, and she, while has significant agricultural experience, uh, she is not someone with a deep portfolio in housing. Uh, she's not on the relevant committees. Uh, it kind of doesn't make a lot of sense 
that they would put her there. And we've seen this replicated now with Susan Rice, who's a foreign policy expert, expert hmm. getting the Domestic Policy Council position. Or Dennis McDonough, who has no history of veterans. He was the chief of staff to Obama, and he, he was a staffer in, in uh, the Obama uh, Senate uh, office and Tom Daschle's Senate office. He becomes VA secretary, and, and, and he has no portfolio for that. So, you know, there's this favor trading and trying to balance uh, racial and gender interests and also reward old friends that is taking precedent over over the effectiveness, potential effectiveness of uh, a Biden cabinet. And, and considering how important the cabinet is going to be regarding being able to carry out these this this robust agenda pretty much on their own, uh, that's really troubling. And now I'll shut up. <laughs> <laughs> David, this is uh, Scott Harris here. And I, I, I just wanted to follow up on the, your concerns about the cabinet. One bright spot, and I'd like to get your take on this, is uh, the appointment of California Attorney General Xavier Becerra to Health and Human Services. Certainly, HHS Secretary is going to be critical with uh, addressing the pandemic and uh, cleaning house in all the appointments that Donald Trump has made over these past four years and the supply chain, the vaccine distribution, there's going to be a lot of work there. Say a word, if you would, about um, Xavier Becerra and what he brings to the job and maybe some of the better candidates that were out there, although he, he has been fairly aggressive in terms of his uh, uh, pushback against Trump policies as attorney general in California. Yeah, well, two things there. Um, Becerra, I think, is a very good choice, and it's kind of he's kind of an accidental choice. Uh, he was not on the short list for uh, uh, Health and Human Services. He was seen as potential attorney general. What happened was that the leading choice was a woman named Michelle Lujan Grisham, who is the governor of New Mexico. And for whatever reason, uh, the uh, Biden administration, uh, Biden transition decided they didn't want her in that position. And instead, they offered her uh, the Interior Department, which is another like consolation prize. And Lujan Grishin said, no, I want to be the HHS secretary. I was the secretary of health in New Mexico. Uh, this is my passion. I want it. I want HHS. And that got leaked as uh, if to say she wasn't a team player. And the Biden administration sort of or, uh, transition moved away from that. This angered the Congressional Hispanic Caucus significantly. And the transition was on the verge of giving Gina Raimondo, the uh, uh, governor of Rhode Island, the position. And uh, then she got some critical scrutiny for uh, her, her views on health care and some of the actions she's taken in Rhode Island. And she pulled herself out of the running. And at that point, because the Hispanic Caucus was so mad, the transition had to scramble and, and kind of satisfy that, and they found Becerra. So uh, one of the best cabinet appointees is someone Biden knows the least. He mispronounced Becerra's name like three times during the rollout of uh, the health care team. And, and it's someone who was sort of a last-minute scramble to satisfy the Hispanic Caucus. So you know, sometimes these things work out. The process is troubling. Now, to talk about Becerra, he has been in a supporter of single payer since the 90s. Uh, since he got into Congress, he spent uh, uh, several terms as a, uh, a representative from Los Angeles. 
He was on the key subcommittee uh, in the Ways and Means Committee on Health. Uh, so he has, he has the background. Um, when he was at uh, the Attorney General's office, you know, he replaced Kamala Harris when she went to the Senate. Uh, so he was appointed, and then he did win uh, election in 2018. He not only, I mean, he was most well known for, uh, you know, suing the Trump administration, right? But one of the uh, less heralded actions that he took was he, he sued a hospital network in Northern California known as Sutter Health. And Sutter Health had formed effectively a monopoly within uh, uh, the Northern California, within that regional health network. Uh, and they were using it to uh, significantly jack up prices and force insurance companies to accept their rates and their outlets no matter what. Uh, it was kind of an all or nothing thing. You either, you either have one Sutter Health, uh, you either have all the Sutter Health uh, 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 options within your network or you get none of them. And that enabled them to raise prices with impunity. So uh, Becerra sued them, and he got a $575 million judgment, uh, as well as a transformation of how, uh, how that transaction works between the hospital network and insurance company. So he has an understanding of how hospital consolidation and prices are really a, a key driver of, of the cost of health care. Uh, as much as it is insurance companies. So that's a really interesting and good perspective to bring to HHS. Now, you know, Biden has brought in some other folks who are going to be handling the COVID vaccine rollout and, 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 and managing and coordinating the, the federal response. But, you know, there's a lot to do at HHS. And uh, Becerra, certainly on reproductive rights, on pharmaceutical prices, on hospital prices and networks uh, has shown himself to be pretty bold. And I think uh, I, I'm, I'm optimistic that he's uh, going to do a good job. David, digging in a little deeper to the cabinet choices, when Obama came in in 08, I know a lot of our hearts sank when he began to lard his uh, cabinet up, especially his economic team, with, with Wall Street high rollers such as Larry Summers, Hank Paulson, Tim Geithner. Uh, these are people that were going to somehow deal with the disaster of the 08-09 crash and come up with fixes that would not really address the egregious misdeeds of the financial industries and let them off the hook. And the, and the fixes were really weak tea. I mean, I think the $800 billion stimulus or whatever they called it was largely tax relief for big business and less relief for the main afflicted people, homeowners and unemployed and people of that status. So what do we know from Biden's economic picks so far about what he might do? I mean, the one that the red, biggest red flag for me is Nira Tandem, who is uh, I think, been uh, designated as uh, head of the Office of Management and Budget. But right. uh, what, what else can, we, can you predict about his approach based on his picks? One that I, I think is somewhat hopeful is Janet Yellen as the Secretary sure. of Treasury. But what, what's your perspective? Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, it's interesting that for all the haphazard and almost cringeworthy nature 
of the process of the rollout of, of this Biden cabinet, uh, it's going to end up several ticks to the left of Barack Obama. And, uh, you know, there, the, the Summers, Geithner access and also sort of the, the, the main branches off that tree have been left out. Uh, we, we did back in March when Biden clinched the nomination uh, a list of what we called the Biden do not reappoint list. Uh, and there were 12 people on that list, all of them, you know, the summer Geithner's axis of the Obama White House. And uh, out of those 12, one of them has gotten any kind of appointment. And that's a guy named Jeff Zients, who's just the coordinator of covid response. Uh, so we, we feel that, that, you know, those that wing of the party has been a little more shut out now. There are some uh, lower-level uh, Obama expats that uh, did make it into important positions, particularly Brian Deese, who is uh, going to be the director of the National Economic Council. Uh, he comes from BlackRock, which is uh, the world's largest asset manager, where uh, he oversaw their, their efforts to be better on climate and uh, almost apologized for their poor efforts on climate. So, so that one is troubling, and the presence of BlackRock itself is, is, is kind of troubling. They, they loom large. They're sort of the modern equivalent of Goldman Sachs in terms of having trillions of dollars of assets under management and uh, their, their tentacles, as it were, in, in a whole lot of different uh, parts of the economy. I think Yellen was a, a pretty good pick. We were the, one of the first outlets to, to note that uh, she was uh, going to get that. She she doesn't come out of that world, that Wall Street world. She comes out of the Berkeley Economics Department. She uh, obviously has had key policymaking positions, first person to be the chair of the Federal Reserve, the head of the Council of Economic Advisors, and uh, Treasury Secretary. So that's that's pretty important. She's a labor economist. Most of the Council of Economic Advisors, or I should say all of them, are labor economists. They're going to be focused on wages. They're going to be focused on on putting the economy back on track. They're going to be focused on on uh, improving labor power. So you know, I think in general, that's that's a pretty decent place to be. I am concerned, uh, you know, in a in a few aspects. I think Tandon was probably better than the alternative. It looked for a while like a guy named Bruce Reed who was the executive director of the Bowles-Simpson Commission, uh, which was a big deficit hawk uh, uh, commission that was trying to, to cut entitlements and reduce the budget deficit. It looked like he was going to get it uh, for a while, and they, they turned to Tandon at the last minute, who, you know, for all her, you know, tangles on Twitter and, and, and things like that, uh, does express a, a, a more of the view more of the sort of yelling wing view of, of, of being, being consumed with labor and, and, uh, and wages and things like that. I don't think that position is going to have the effect on policy that it had in the Obama administration when Peter Orzag, another deficit hawk, got the job uh, in the first term, at least. So, you know, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic at least in relative terms, on that level, on the economic team. But, you know, there's there are a lot of picks left to be seen. What are some of the uh, things that you might recommend in terms of popular pushback or advocacy 
as we move toward this Biden administration. Yesterday, there was a rather discouraging meeting where he proclaimed, I'm not going to do any executive orders. That would be unconstitutional and, and this kind of stuff. What are your thoughts about using this incredible mobilization that we saw in the spring and summer, Black Lives Matter and and other issues, which raised so many systemic questions about our economy and police brutality and racism. How do you see that working? And we literally have uh, one minute for you to answer that question. Well, I mean, if, if everybody knew what my job was and everything I could do with my job, and they were going to hold me accountable to what I could do, I would be upset too. And I would try to lash out and, 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 uh, and preserve, uh, you know, my, my decision-making in that way. But that's the job. That's the job of the presidency. And everybody knows or should know what the presidency can do. It has a lot of power. Uh, as much as Biden seems to want to disclaim that in that in that interview that you're talking about, uh, he does. And we know it. And uh, we can hold him accountable for it. So I advise people to, to check out our, our coverage, uh, dayoneagenda.org, uh, and also prospect.org for Cabinet Watch coverage. And, and, and just this is where the, the progress of a Biden administration is going to come from. If he wants to be a successful president, if he wants the Democratic Party to succeed as a party that gives tangible results to people, uh, he's going to be as aggressive as possible in making progress. And that's all that we ask for and we should ask for. Well said, David. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with David Dian, who is the executive editor of the American Prospect magazine. A wonderfully clarifying conversation. We must have you back. Please accept our invitation for future visits to uh, the Resistance Roundtable and, and WPKN in general. Um, All right. I enjoyed it. Thanks. It's been our pleasure. And uh, you have been listening to the Resistance Roundtable. We come to you the second Saturday of each month from 10 to 11 a.m. For Scott Harris, Ruth Ann Baumgartner, and myself, Richard Hill, we thank you for listening. And stay tuned to WPKN for more great programming. Uh, I think Barry Kada is up next. This is WPKN in Bridgeport, 89.5 FM, and streaming online at WPKN.org.